Um, I think most of you know, and, and Mark just uh, gave me a nice introduction here, is a deacon over finance, and, and that is um, one of my roles in the church here. Uh, I enjoy it, but quite honestly, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm passionate about it. So when we were talking about, well, you know, we're supposed to have an open forum to kind of preach on something or teach on something really that we're passionate about, uh, I had some people say, oh, yeah, you should do finances because they know, you know, that's what I do for a living. And I thought about it and I thought, you know, the Bible has a lot to say about finances and money, but I can't say that it's something I'm really passionate about, that it, that it would be something I would categorize that way just spent a couple days backpacking up in the Sierras, and uh, and it was beautiful, and it would be easy to say, hey, look at God's creation, all this beauty, this nature that, that God created. I am certainly passionate about that, but unfortunately, I couldn't write, you know, a lesson in like 10 hours since I've been home, so, so we're not doing that. Um, <laughs> so I've really been examining my heart, trying to see, hey, what am I passionate about? What do I want to want to bring forward and, and teach on here today? And as I kind of come to the conclusion, I, I think the thing that I gravitate towards the most is really seeing, seeing God's fulfillment of his promises, um, looking back at, uh, at history, the history of Israel, the history of the early church, seeing faithful men and women um, move forward, and, and God using them to advance his purposes for his glory, and, uh, and seeing how that um, just comes to fruition is something that I do find passionate about. And I know because when I sit down to read something, that's typically where I like to go. And so I can say, well, I'm passionate because I know that's where my heart is. That's what I enjoy learning more about. And so um, so that's really what I want to talk about this morning. And specifically, um, as I was going through and preparing for this lesson, um, a portion of scripture stood out to me as something that I enjoyed learning more about, and I thought you might as well. It is focused on a, a figure in the New Testament. He's only, uh, only in the New Testament for a few chapters, so he is, is sometimes overlooked. Um, but his short stint in Scripture really doesn't characterize his role very well. He is an excellent example of a Christian and a Christ follower, <clears throat> but he also has a very unique role in the development of the early church. He's uniquely, God, he's uniquely used by God in an explosive way that really only God could use. And the person um, that I'm going to be talking about here is Stephen. And so we're going to be in Acts chapter 6 through 8. And I apologize for the, the white background. I guess it doesn't show up as well. And there'll be some small text. So hopefully, uh, hopefully everyone can see uh, or at least follow along. Um, so he's a person that we really can learn a lot about in our own lives and understanding his life story better really can both encourage our own faiths and gain a better understanding of God and how God operates. Um, Stephen, we're going to be focused today on Acts chapter 6, um, 7 and 8. We'll be talking some about next week as well, um, but go ahead and turn your Bibles to, to chapter 6. And I haven't, I've read through this scripture several times over, over my life, and, it, and I tend to pass through it pretty quickly and focus on different aspects of the text, but I've never really sat down and, and looked at who Stephen was and, and what his specific role was um, within these chapters. And that's what I hope to do today, and hopefully you find it encouraging. Um, really, I couldn't find a better introduction to who Stephen was than what... Um, Dr. John MacArthur has to say on Stephen. So I'm going to borrow this and share it with you as an introduction. <clears throat> and then Dr. MacArthur wrote this, that Stephen was the first martyr 
I mean, I think most of you know that, right? When I say Stephen, everyone says, oh, yeah, he's the, the first martyr. And then that's pretty much like all anyone knows. So hopefully this will expand your horizon a little bit. Um, he's the first martyr. He's not a deacon, but a servant. He's not an apostle, but a miracle worker. Not a prophet, but a great preacher. He's a very unique man. He stands between the apostles and the structure of the early church uniquely. The only parallel to him we meet in chapter 8, and it is Philip, who is also named in chapter 6 along with him. He is a transitional personality. The testimony given, given to the Jews, led by Peter and the apostles, is soon to be closed. And the testimony to the Gentile world, begun by Paul, is soon to be open. Between Peter and Paul, Stephen is like a bridge. He's chosen by Peter and the apostles, and he's martyred at the hands of Paul. He is a transitional man, a bridge. He didn't minister to the foreign Gentiles. He ministered to the foreign Jews. Again, an indication of his unique transition. He is a catalyst for the dispersion of the early church. It was because of his martyrdom and the persecution that was launched at the point of his martyrdom that the believers scattered. And that was the purpose of God and his martyrdom because Jesus had said, when the Holy Spirit comes... You will be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the world. What was going to send them into Judea? <clears throat> what was going to send them into Samaria? What was going to send them into the world? Not a missionary mission, but persecution, martyrdom, and the threat of death. And that's the role of Stephen. And I really love the description that Dr. MacArthur uses for Stephen as a transitional man transitioning between these ministries of Peter and Paul. It really brings Stephen's ministry up to a different level when you think about it that way, right? Peter and Paul stand up as pillars of the faith of the early apostles. Peter was one of the main apostles doing the preaching in Jerusalem, and Paul, we would know, to go on and play such a huge role in the ministering to the Gentiles. And here's this brief period of time between the two, and Stephen fills it with his ministry, and that is meeting the, uh, the needs of the foreign Jews. Although he's short-lived, it's a similar level, right? When you picture a bridge, it equates two different levels. So even if, if Peter and Paul are at different levels, Stephen's ministry is somewhere in between because it has to bridge the two if you envision it like a bridge. Peter's ministry to the Jews in Jerusalem and Paul's ministry to the Gentiles outside Jerusalem. So Stephen would minister to the foreign Jews. And as we walk through this text over the next two weeks, there are really three main sections that I want to point out and we want to pay some attention to. And we're going to draw some application from these. The first is Stephen as an example of Christianity. The second is Stephen as a defender of the faith. And third is Stephen as a tool used by God to sovereignly accomplish his will. Today we're going to spend our time on the first of these sections. So we're going to get to know Stephen get an understanding of his ministry and the example that he set forth as a Christian. And then next week we're going to continue and we're going to look at the defense of the faith and the direct impacts that that defense had. Throughout both days we're really going to see that Stephen would play an important role in Christ's statement just preceding the ascension in Acts 1 verse 8 where he said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And we're going to see how, how Stephen's ministry plays into that in both aspects as a defender of the faith and as a servant leading up to that point. 
So before we get started looking at Stephen, we need to understand what's going on in the church at the time. There's Acts 1-8, the early church. So this is Acts 1 through 5. We need to understand what's happening as Stephen's preparing to come on the scene. Um, We take a look at this. It's about 31 AD. This is not long after Pentecost. So the Holy Spirit's been received by the church. The apostles are in Jerusalem. They're doing their ministry work. They're healing. They're doing other miracles are taking place. They're preaching, and the Lord is actively building his church in Jerusalem, right? The first part of that Acts uh, 1-8 statement made by Christ. Many were being added to their numbers, so by the hundreds and even thousands. In Acts 2-40, we see 3,000 were added at the day of Pentecost through Peter's preaching. In Acts 4, we see the men in the church numbered 5,000. With women and children, it was a multiple of that, so several times 5,000. As reported in Acts 6-7, the word of God continued to increase and the numbers of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So this isn't just hearing the word of God being proclaimed. We see people actually being converted. We see the church growing at a rapid rate. This is the notion of loving and obeying. It is submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ and it's a mark of conversion. People were being saved and Peter was really at the forefront of the church at this time, leading this, leading this charge. We had many signs and wonders that were being done by the apostles at this time as a testament to Christ and the, and the apostles' message. And Peter was, was again in the middle of it. In chapter 3, we see an account of a lame beggar who was healed at the entrance to the temple. Um, Peter would go into the temple and proceed preaching Christ and a call for repentance. And although the apostles had been and would continue to be warned not to preach Christ, preach Christ's name, they would continue to do so, and the Lord would protect them and continue to build his church. And this was all happening at a very rapid rate. It's really a pretty amazing time for the early church when you think about the spread of the gospel and how many new believers were being added to such a small body at such such a short period of time. Well, the apostles were being persecuted... When the apostles were being persecuted, they were being beaten and imprisoned by the Sadducees, and they continued to preach boldly. In chapter 4, we see a unity occurring within the church, right? We see that the early church, they're described as being of one heart, have everything in common. There was a great grace among them, and there was not a needy person among them. They were selling property. They were taking care of the needs of each other. It says there was not a needy person among them. They were bold, and there was unity within the church, there was this common bond. And although it wasn't without sin, we know Ananias and, and that story of, of withholding and lying. And so it's not a perfect body of believers by any stretch of the means. It was a church full of sinful people like, like all churches. Um, but there was this unity occurring and a common grace that was blessed upon them is what Scripture says. There was a great grace among them. And this was the body of the church. Christ promised that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem. And it's really being lived out here before us as his church is being built, and it's not going unnoticed by the local authorities. So as a result of preaching Christ in 517, chapter 5, verse 17, the high priest and the Sadducees would go on and, uh, and arrest um, Peter and the apostles, <coughs> and they would lock them up. And an angel released them. So an angel releases them from prison, and what do they do? They go right back to teaching in the temple. 
They don't go home. They don't go see their family. They don't, hey, you know what just happened to us? They go right back to teaching in the temple. And the, um, the authorities, right, the Sadducees and the high priests, they find out where they are, and they come. They drag them back before the court. They say, hey, we told you not to teach in his name, right, in Christ's name. And here you are. You have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. It's 527. Peter answers the Sadducees with this statement. He says, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. So what an amazing response, right? They've been imprisoned, released by an angel, dragged back out. You know, they go back out to teaching. They drag, be dragged right back before the high court. Really, and they're furious. Um, in fact, it says they were filled with jealousy at the time. Why are they jealous? Because they see the following that's being built behind the church. They see the miracles that are occurring, and they're thinking, hey, you know, we're the holy ones. Like, we're the ones following the law. Why is this happening through these apostles, and, and what's going on here? And they're filled with jealousy. But Peter's response is really amazing in the boldness that it is that he stands before them, and they're enraged at him, and his boldness carries forward into Stephen's preaching as well. So in, with no regard for his own safety or his own concern, he says that he must follow God's command and not man's. He isn't disrespectful to the authority that's over him, right? He doesn't denounce them, but he speaks strictly in steadfastness in the faith and in truth, and he tells them that he must follow God. This statement, to me, is reminiscent of something we'd see in Paul's preaching, right? It has the same boldness where he is um, uh, uncompromising in his delivery, and it is the same that we'll see with Stephen in his delivery before the Sadducees. These, this is an area that all three of these men have in common, that they're not disrespectful over the authority that God has placed before them, but they're totally uncompromising in their delivery and their message in God's truth. And none of them have any real regard for their own safety. Um, they know that, that that's not where their hope lies. And so when the high priests and the council heard this, they were enraged. They wanted to kill the apostles based on what Peter had said. In fact, they were pretty close to killing the apostles. Peter was about to become the first martyr, take Stephen's spot, but that wasn't the Lord's plan. Gamaliel, a teacher of the law and a teacher of Paul, would actually step in and say, hey, hold on, you know, if, if these guys are, are, uh, are not telling the truth, right, then, then no one's going to follow them. They're going to you know, they're going to fall apart just as they have in the past. He says they will fail just as the efforts before them have failed. Why? Because God's not behind them. But Gamamiel says, but if they're backed by God, then nothing can stop them. And you might be found opposing God. What insight, right, comes to the Sadducees, not from the apostles, but from this teacher of the law, from Gamamiel. And this was, this was clearly the Lord's doing and to protect what the apostles were, were doing at the time made the, made the uh, high council stop and think about their decision, and they say, well, we're not going to kill him. We're just going to beat him and then let him go. So they beat him. They gave him a staunch warning, hey, don't, don't speak of his name anymore. Don't teach in Christ's name. And they let him go. And what do they do? 
Of course, right? They turn right around. The apostles turn right around and they rejoice that they were counted worthy to suffer for Christ. So the first thing they do is rejoice, not because they got out, but because they were even in prison to begin with, to suffer for Christ. And they turn around and they go back to teaching and preaching Christ in the temples in the house every day is what it says. Um, So they go right into the homes and the synagogues and they start teaching. This is the early church. This is the church at the time uh, when Stephen comes onto the scene, right? It's a tightly unified body, and it's growing, and they're walking faithfully forward with this uh, evangelical message, converting Jews in Jerusalem, even priests in Jerusalem we see. And although they probably seemed probably disorganized and chaotic because of the lack of just structure and organization within the body, they were clearly being successful, and God was using them to build his church just as he has promised. And that brings us to Acts chapter 6. And I'm going to read 6, 1 through 8. This is the main text that we're going to be talking about in relation to Stephen today. And it reads as this. It says, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from you, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what he said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicaron, and Timaron, and Perminas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. The, these they set forth before the apostles, and they, they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. <coughs> Now, there's not a lot about Stephen's background in this. You can easily read through it and just see Stephen named and move on to the next six names, not giving it a whole lot of thought. For example, we don't really know where Stephen's from. We don't know about his background. We don't know about his family. We don't know how he came to faith. There's not a lot of background at all. Yet, in spite of the lack of explicit detail about his history, we can really learn a lot about Stephen. He's introduced... He's introduced through a dispute within the church. This is a growing complaint that's raised by the Hellenists against the Hebrews, that their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. The Hellenists, these are the Greek-speaking Jews from the Dysphoria. So these are dispersed Jews um, that speak Greek. Why? Because they'd been living in the the Greek areas outside of of Palestine or Israel. Um, They were first exiled or scattered, in 722 B.C., when the Assyrians declared war and conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, and then 588 B.C., when the Chaldeans conquered the southern portion of Judea. So each time they were conquered, right, they were imprisoned or they were fled outside of Israel, and they were living in areas outside of Israel, um, and they were living in in Greek-speaking communities. And so over the years, um, they lost their, their heritage. They lost their language. They didn't speak Hebrew, they spoke Greek, they were using Greek customs, they were very much Jewish by nationality, or heritage, I should say, 
but very much culturally they were Greek. These are the Hellenists. Now these Hellenists are part of the church. So this is a minority within the church because they had been teaching in the synagogues in Jerusalem and, and the believers there were, were mostly um, Jews that had come to faith in Christ. <clears throat> and now we see this minority of, of uh, the Hellenists. In fact, sometime in the third century, so the, the Hellenists um, being outside of Israel uh, because they couldn't speak Hebrew, it was sometime in the first century that the, the Old Testament um, books of Moses, right? Our Old Testament was translated into Greek primarily for this body, and that's where we get the Septuagint, right? That's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. If you ever wonder why it was translated at such an early time, it was because you had a body of, of Jews that were living outside that didn't speak Hebrew anymore. They were actually being, being looked down upon because they couldn't read the, the law of Moses, and so there were some priests that translated that from Hebrew to Greek, um, and that's where that term Septuagint comes from. And it's a reference to a, a story that 72 scribes translated the various texts in 72 days, and that Septuagint references the 72. So why is that important? Why is this? I'm sure there were other conflicts in the church at the time. Why was this mentioned, and why is it important to Stephen? It's important to know because these, this is a small, this is a minority group of Hellenists. They were believers. They were Christians. They were Jews by nationality. So they were part of the, the nation of Israel. They were living as a part of the church even though they were a minority within the church. So they were, getting, they were, they were being able to witness and take part of the daily life of the church body, that unity we were talking about. This was a starting point for the broadening of the spreading of the gospel. So remember, Christ said he's going to bring it to Jerusalem, and then he's going to bring it to the Gentile word outside Jerusalem. This is an in-between group. This is a group that is, is, is culturally Gentile, but is Jewish by, by nationality. So it's a starting point for that broadening. They knew the Greek language and culture, meaning what? In chapter 8, we're going to see that, that Stephen's death and his martyrdom is going to be a catalyst, which is going to spread Christians out into the Gentile world. And we know Paul's ministry picks up and takes that forward. But as that, as that happens, I mean, how powerful is it to have a group of, of believers that are in the church that have been witnessed to, seen how church works and functions? They know the teaching from the apostles, but they're culturally... Greek, and they can go out and spread that gospel into the broader Greek community, the Gentile community, I'd rather say. So it's a very unique group of people, and the basis of their complaint, being the minority in this, in this church, was that their widows in this minority group <coughs> were being neglected. Remember, there was unity, and, and everyone was sharing resources they felt that, that their widows were somehow being neglected in that distribution. The apostles recognized that their primary goal or their primary role really was not to serve tables but to devote themselves to prayer and ministry of the word. So they didn't have the time or that wasn't really the best use of their time, I should say, to serve tables and deal with the complaint. So the apostles called together the body of the church, the full number of the disciples. So they called everyone together, church meeting, full number of the disciples. Everyone come in. And ask them, hey, you pick seven men. You pick seven men um, to serve tables so that we can continue to devote ourselves to prayer and ministry of the word. 
you select them and we'll appoint them. So nomination process and a confirmation process, basically. The serve tables reference means the reference um, to tables is really where that, where that handling of the money and or resources taking place. So the widows uh, are, are not getting uh, the resources, the money and or supplies being administered at those tables, and so they're charged with dealing with the serving of tables. Now, there's some difference in opinion here, but our belief is that the men that are selected here, these seven, really are not the first deacons of the church. So you'll hear sometimes, oh, these seven were the first deacons, and there's arguments on both sides of that. Um, the term deacon is, comes from the, the Greek word to serve, and that same, that same verb of serving is used in both First Timothy, where we talk about the office of deaconship, and here in Acts 6. Um, but the noun form of that verb, actually calling someone a deacon, is found in First Timothy, is not found here in Acts. Um, that's not the only reason. This is very limited appointment. So they're being selected to, to, to deal with a very specific complaint. Right, this complaint by the Hellenists. It's not a broader term of, uh, of servants. They're, they're called to meet a very specific and limited need. And although some of the duties and qualifications of the men and deacons of First Timothy may be similar, um, the first deacon office really, or the first Timothy office of deacon really hadn't been established yet, um, and this was really a temporary position that needed to be filled. If you were to look at the qualifications for deacons in 1 Timothy, we would find things like husband of one wife, managing their children and households well, um, let's see, not a slave to too much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. It's a much more uh, detailed list of qualifications than what we see here in Acts 6. In both cases, it's interesting to point out that they're, they're not free to do their own thing, but they're both working under, um, under supervisors, right? They're working under the guidance of someone above them. In Acts 6, they're going to be a, a, um, confirmed by the apostles and do what the apostles had asked. In 1 Timothy, they operate under the, the leadership of the elders of the church, um, as in 1 Timothy. So in both cases, it is a, a servant doing the work of the church, not kind of out doing their own ministry, Although with the, the men that are appointed here, we see that Philip and Stephen do have their own ministry work that they will be conducting. Um, so when you look at those differences between Acts 6 and 1 Timothy, they don't contradict one another, right? 1 Timothy is more detailed and it's more specific, and that's why there's a lot of discussion over whether or not they were the first deacons, because they're not clearly yes or no. Um, but I think when you look at, at the specific circumstances, uh, we would say that they, they were not. Um, and it's really not our focus of our study here today to talk about whether or not they were deacons. What we're here to talk about is Stephen and the importance in talking about this, this issue of deacons and, uh, and their role as servants. Uh, what is important here is that they were needed to serve in a capacity to resolve this complaint, that they were needed to be selected through an official process, and that they needed to be they needed to meet certain criteria and specific criteria in Scripture because Stephen was one of these men that were selected. And this is where we're going to start to really get an understanding of who Stephen was based on the criteria he met to be appointed. You see, the criteria outlined by the apostles for this section tells us a lot about the men that were subsequently selected for these positions. They were to be men of good repute. 
right? They need to have good reputations. Um, They best be known for this. Secondly, they need to be full of the Spirit. That is, indwelt with the Spirit. We're talking about believers. They have to be converted. They need to have faith. And third, they were to be full of wisdom, right? This is a maturity. Um, this, is, this means that they were maybe wiser, or definitely wiser, maybe older. Um, so they were to be men of good repute, full of spirit, and full of wisdom. And they were to be known for these things. So this isn't something where they filled out a form or a questionnaire and said, oh, yeah, his answer shows that he knew... Uh, you know, the Old Testament really well, so he's wise, right? He, they need to be known for these things, and that's where the repute comes into play because that's, they're being voted on and nominated by the group of the body of believers at the time, not based on, on other accomplishments that they've achieved in their life. The seven men, remember, they were there. They were being appointed for a purpose. They were being selected to deal with a complaint within the church, That means they must be equipped to work well with people and to resolve conflict. The complaint was about the division or distribution of resources and needs, so they must be honest and trustworthy with finances. They must, um, additionally, they were having to work with the Hellenist, so they must be able to understand the different culture and the language, likely speak Greek. In fact, all seven of the men that were appointed had Greek names. And the, the prevailing thought here is that they were likely Hellenists themselves. This would make them well-equipped to work with the minority population within the church and to resolve the dispute. And you can see the names as listed above. So none of them are Hebrews. By nationality, those are all Greek surnames, or first names, I should say. The first man to be selected meeting these criteria was Stephen. And I would note that Stephen didn't put himself up for this appointment. It wasn't a process of, hey, if you're interested, put your name in the hat in the foyer or send an email to the church office or whatever they did back then. That wasn't the process at all. <clears throat> Stephen didn't put himself up for the appointment. No one did. They didn't run campaigns. There weren't arguments, arguments amongst them about who was the greatest, right? We heard that before. He and the rest of the seven were selected by the body of the church and they were appointed or commissioned by the apostles. Stephen must have met these criteria fully as he was the very first selection. And that's a huge honor. He didn't barely make the cut. He wasn't sixth or seventh, right? No offense to to Nicholas who, who, who just made the cut. But keep in mind, this wasn't a small church. This was thousands of men. 5,000 men at one point, and that was, that was before more had been added to the body. So, so he, was, he was definitely known for these items as he was the first one. Stephen was of good repute. <clears throat> they knew his reputation. He was well-known. He had a good reputation, right? This is something that's learned or earned over time through faithful service. You don't get a reputation by doing one thing or doing something for a week. You get a reputation by doing things over and over again. Consider our local church body, right? If we were here to select people to represent us, would you, if you were looking for someone of good repute, we'd be looking for someone with a faithful history of service. We'd be looking for someone who's, maybe their personal life reflects that of good choices. 
um, that shows that they're, they're faithful and that, that they've handled their, their affairs well. Stephen was likely a Hellenist himself, but more importantly, in 6.5, we see that he was full of faith. He was a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. So he was a believer and follower of Christ as his Lord and Savior, but it wasn't a quiet personal faith. Remember, these people were being selected by the congregation, right, to meet certain criteria. They must be known for these things. It's not about his personal faith. He must have been a witness. People knew he was a man of faith. He was known to be full of faith. His faith was on display. As such, he was probably not a new convert, but I would say that, you know, in a church that hasn't been around very long, they were kind of all new converts, but of the new converts, he had likely been around long enough to, well, he had been around long enough to earn a reputation for being a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. This, is rep- this type of reputation is built over time. Note that the text here specifically calls out Stephen. Oh, lost my Stephen as being a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and that's in the, in the text itself. Obviously, they were, all, they were all believers. The other six were full of the Spirit as well. You remember there were three criteria of good repute, right? Wise and, and being of faith. But Luke chose to highlight Stephen as being full of faith in the Holy Spirit. So when you read the text, it actually says it just like this. It says, Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and then goes on to list the other six. So he stops the list of six to mention that Stephen is full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. The same term was used to describe Barnabas in Acts 11.24, and it didn't point to a specific experience, but more a general characteristic of their lives. So Luke, right, the author of Acts, felt it's important to specifically attribute this to Stephen in addition to all seven men meeting the broader criteria being saved. So this is more of a characteristic of Stephen's life. Stephen, in particular, had a life evidencing of his being a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Stephen was also full of wisdom. 6.3 He was well-versed in his knowledge and understanding of the faith. Along these same lines, he was a skilled debater. And this will become extremely evident when we take a look at his defense of the faith in chapter 7. And even later in chapter 6, when those arguing with Stephen couldn't withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. In fact, Stephen's arguments in defense of the faith, which we'll discuss more next week, were so strong that they prevailed over the Sanhedrin. Right? And that's, the, that's like the top level of Jewish officials, right? These are the people that are upholding the, the Old Testament Jewish faith that are known for the laws and the legalistic, you know, adherence to the laws. And, and just like you, we've seen with Christ in his arguments before the Sanhedrin, just like we saw with Paul in his arguments before this same council, we'll see the same thing with Stephen in his arguments before the Sanhedrin, and he leaves them without, without any argument. So we're starting to get a picture of, of Stephen and who Stephen was based on the criteria he met. Well, in Acts 6, 8, we see a few more observations on Stephen. And, and first of all, he is full of grace. 
This is probably referring to the grace upon Stephen by the Lord and grace towards others. Similar, similar wording was used back in Acts 4.33 when Luke was speaking of that early church and the unity amongst the church, having everything in common. And he says, And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was among them all. Right? This is this common grace amongst the body of believers. Stephen was full of grace, overflowing with, right? All of these observations on what he was full of um, means he was full of or overcome with, filled up with, filled up with grace, the grace of God and the grace of love towards others. And finally, Stephen was full of power. And that's the power of God through the Holy Spirit, including the Holy Spirit's saving, guiding, teaching, miracle-working power and his power to witness Christ. Stephen was full of power as described by Christ at the time of his ascension in Acts 1, verse 8, when he says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Then he ascends into the clouds. You will receive power. Right? That is the coming of the Holy Spirit. That is the power that with, with which Stephen is filled with. And as an outpouring... As an outpouring of this, we see that Stephen is doing wonders and signs among the people in 6 verse 8. Stephen was performing miracles. In fact, Stephen was the first non-apostle to perform miracles in Scripture. So in the New Testament, the first miracle we see performed by someone other than the apostles is Stephen, and it's here in Acts 6. This is again a sign of his very unique position. The term wonders and signs are used together several times in Scripture, and they, they're used to complement one another, really. Um, Dr. MacArthur describes wonders as the amazement people experience when witnessing supernatural works or miracles. So the wonder, standing in wonder. Signs are pointing to the power of God behind miracles. Such work was often done by the Holy Spirit through the apostles and their associates to authenticate them as messengers of God's truth. Stephen was performing miracles through the power of the Holy Spirit to authenticate his testimony of Jesus Christ, and the people were in wonder as they witnessed them. So we see signs and wonders. So Stephen is full of, full of power and full of grace. Stephen is a great example of a Christian for all of us. We can see he's full of faith. He's a selfless servant. He's teaching. He's evangelizing. He's walking in faith, and he's really doing this more and more. You can see all of these observations we've talked about here listed on the slide above me. He's, he's clearly all in. He is, he is fully committed to Christ. He's fully committed to spreading the gospel. He's fully committed to the early church. He's willing to serve needs as they arise both, arise both inside the church, outside the church, and in defense of the gospel. And as we discuss more next week, <clears throat> it's the example that Stephen sets that's applicable to our life. And the lessons we can learn as we talk about Stephen, it's a good time to, to look at, at Stephen's qualifications and, and what does that mean in our lives. Stephen was saved. 
right? We know this. He was a believer. He was fully faith. He was full of the Holy Spirit. First question we need to ask, are we saved, right? This isn't a question of our salvation or a matter of losing salvation, but it is a matter of evaluating our hearts. Do we believe the same gospel that Christ preached, Do we, that, that Peter preached, that Paul preached, and that Stephen preached? That it's not through the law that we're saved, but through our sin and the law that we're condemned, and it's Christ's sacrificial on the sacrificial death on the cross that was necessary to pay the price for our sins that we may have salvation that's the gospel that Stephen preached that's the gospel that Stephen would die for Stephen's faith was public he was known for these things he was the first selected now it's everyone can't be the first one selected but is your faith public you know, are, are you known for these things, or are you a quiet Christian that, oh, I'm, I'm a good Christian, but no one, no one knows? I mean, I read my Bible at home. I don't talk to anyone about it. Is your faith public? Stephen was a servant. We see Stephen was selected to serve, but Stephen was serving well before that. <coughs> Stephen was, was selected, um, and he wasn't picking or choosing how he was serving. He was a selfless servant. He didn't serve because he could gain something. He didn't serve because he got something of benefit out of the early church. Um, he didn't choose and pick his ministry that he was serving in. In fact, when Stephen was nominated to serve tables, he didn't say, well, you know, I don't really know if that's the best use of my time or I'm not really comfortable working with people. Or He didn't argue at all. In fact, none of the seven did. They were nominated, they were confirmed, and they served. Stephen was prepared. So we don't know a lot about what Stephen was doing before this point of his nomination to, uh, to deal with the conflict in the early church with the Hellenists and the Hebrews. Um, but whatever it was, it certainly prepared him for what God had in store for him. Um, and that comes through his knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures. It comes from his ability to work with others and communicate with others to resolve those disputes. That preparation that earned him that reputation um, is what made him the first on the list to be asked when this need arose within the church. Stephen was wise. We don't know his IQ or his GPA or however they measured that back in the day. Um, but he was noted in Scripture as being full of wisdom. We know he was wise. We know from his argument in defense of the, of the gospel that he had a clear command of the Old Testament Scriptures, the history of Israel, that he could just bring off the top of his tongue. He was a skilled debater. He was wise. That, some of that comes naturally, right? Some of us are better at school. Some of us are better at, at uh, retaining information than others. But we're all called to develop those skills within ourselves so that we can provide a defense for the faith. And we'll get to look at Stephen's defense next week. And even if it's not a defense of the faith, maybe it's just evangelism, right? Maybe it's teaching the faith. Maybe it's teaching others. Stephen was gracious. Stephen was full of grace, is what the scripture says. <clears throat> he was full of grace. And so how do we deal with others? Are we gracious? Do we show God's love as he's shown to us? Do we show that to others in how we deal with them? In resolving disputes, can you do that gracefully in a way that doesn't offend all the other parties that are involved, the way that, that Stephen and, and the rest of the seven did? Oh, wrong button here. 
Stephen wasn't prideful or boastful. So Stephen gets nominated. He's first on the list. In fact, they stop the list to say how he's full of the Holy Spirit, right? And at least Luke does in the account. Um, but he's the number one candidate. And Stephen doesn't come forward um, and boast about his appointment or his position. Uh, he just moves forward and, and serves. It doesn't mean he's shy or passive or humble, or he is humble, but not shy or passive. And we'll see when he goes to evangelize and he goes to spread the gospel, he does it with vigor and he does it with force, the same way we see Peter do it, the same way we see Paul do it. But he does it with humility and he doesn't do it with pride. Stephen's effective. So look at Stephen, and I know we stopped short of verse 9 where Stephen is pre- preaching in, in three different synagogues, the freedmen, I believe the Syrians, and, and one other. Um, Stephen chose his ministry areas in ways that, that his personal skills complemented. He was a Hellenist, most likely, right? He spoke Greek, he understood the culture. He didn't go into Peter's ministry and go, hey, I'm going to go speak to some Jews and not worry about this Greek background I've got or this understanding I've got. He went and he used it for his ministry. And we know it was effective because as he ministered, it says, um, it says that the numbers were multiplying by the word and the word of God was increasing. That's 6, 8. And that's, that's Peter, Stephen was right in the middle of that with his ministry to the foreign Jews. Stephen was bold, right, unashamed of the gospel. In the same way that we see Peter defending the faith and proclaiming the faith and Paul, we see Stephen with that same vigor. And I know we didn't, haven't gotten to Stephen's speech yet, but we'll focus on that next week, and I think you'll see this, this same characteristic. Stephen was an evangelist. As I mentioned, he was preaching in a few different synagogues, um, you know, you can say, well, we're not all called to be an evangelist, but, but really we are at some level. There is a great commission, and that does apply to all of us. We are witnesses, and we're supposed to be spreading God's word. Um, so maybe you're not standing up and preaching in front of a foreign synagogue like Stephen was doing. Um, but certainly we all have our own areas where we all call, are called to be evangelists. And again, that comes back into how we're using our skill sets and how we're using them to be effective in, in the areas of our lives and our ministries. And finally, Stephen loves Christ. It's evident by everything that he's done here, right? His love for the church and his obedience to Christ's call, those are out of love. I mean, he is committed. He's committed his whole life uh, without regard to his own safety or his own well-being or really his own future. Um, even not knowing his outcome yet, he, he provides a vigor defense of the faith. He's serving in the local church. He's meeting the needs He's, he's committed to the church body because of his love for Christ, right? It's obedience out of his expression of his love. And so as we close our time on Stephen, I really want to remember some points from our introduction. That Stephen's this transitional man. He fills this very unique and significant position within the early church. He's a bridge between the ministries of Peter and Paul. It's a short, but it's a critical bridge an important ministry between the nation of Israel and the Gentiles as he ministers to the foreign Jews being used by God to fulfill his word to spread the gospel outside of Jerusalem. And next week we're going to look at his arrest and the defense of the gospel to the Sanhedrin 
It's one of the most powerful and concise defenses of the gospel to a Jewish audience that I think I've ever seen. And it's one of the, it's, I think it's the longest continuous sermon recorded in the book of Acts. Um, it, is, it is a powerful defense of the gospel. And then we'll see how God would use Stephen's defense to really to catapult the gospel into the Gentile world. So with that, I'm going to go ahead and close in prayer. Lord, we're thankful for the example that Stephen has set forth, that your word reveals to us, and that we can apply those points to our lives. We're thankful for faithful men like Stephen and Peter and Paul and those that you have raised up to spread the gospel and carry your message forth into the world. And Lord, we pray that we would have that, that same boldness to, uh, to do the same in our lives, that we would, we would be putting your purposes um, and your, your church before our own personal desires and wants, and that we would be faithful in rising up when we are asked to serve the same way uh, that Peter did when he was asked to serve. Lord, we, we're thankful for these things. We're thankful for the gospel message that Stephen died to proclaim and that you used to spread to the nations. It is through men like that that, that the saving message of the gospel goes out, and we're thankful for it. We're thankful that, that we've heard it. Lord, we pray that... Um, our hearts would be prepared for the rest of our service this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.